I try to always assume the best, meaning that the patient is, is in a vulnerable place that were coming to me for help. It might just be an innocent remark or it might be the question behind the question might be, do you know what you're doing? Either way, it's okay. They're, they're allowed to have that, that fear because it's, it's their life and, and they want the best for their care. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD. Welcome to season five of Parallax. Uh, thank you for all the love and for all the support. Um, you know, as I've said in, in some of my previous episodes, Parallax is, uh, is ranked at number two by feedspot.com. Uh, these are ratings which were published last year on September 2. And, you know, we are really proud of where we've come. Uh, certainly would not have been possible without the listeners and, and certainly not possible without our uh, phenomenal guests, uh, you know, one of which is um, on on today's show. And, uh, you know, this name, this name certainly uh, needs no introduction. We've followed her uh, on Twitter and we've really loved her rules. Um, and... We have garnered so much uh, clinical insight into patient care and how to conduct ourselves as physicians and clinicians, you know, through reading those rules uh, on Twitter. And, you know, she has gone a step further now uh, and actually published a book, which I think is a phenomenal read. I'm actually reading it. I'm in the middle of reading it. I haven't read it completely, but uh, it's, it's a book which I haven't been able to keep down ever since I've started it earlier this week. Um, so without much further ado, I'd like to introduce, formally introduce our guest on, on today's show, which is, you know, episode 84 of Parallax, but it's actually the first episode of season five. So happy new year to everyone. So my guest on, on today's show is Dr. Michelle Kittleson. Uh, you know, as I mentioned before, this name needs no introduction. And she's a professor of medicine and cardiology at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in California um, and an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist. Uh, we've known her by hashtag Kittleson Rules on Twitter. And, you know, I've been an avid follower of hers for several years. We've actually been wanting to do this episode for, uh, you know, almost three years. You know, I'm a, I'm a strong believer that every occurrence in life has a timing. And so there was a timing to it and it could not be perfect timing now that she's out with a book. Um, we're going to talk about her book, which is Mastering the Art of, of Patient Care. Um, but, you know, before we get into the book, uh, Michelle, uh, thank you so much for doing this for us and welcome on the show. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, it's, it's our pleasure. And, you know, for, uh, from, on the behalf of everyone, um, at Parallax and, and Radcliffe Medical Media, uh, congratulations on the book. You know, as I mentioned in my introduction, um, I haven't finished it yet, but it's, it's a book which I have not been able to keep down because it's written so well and it's organized so well and the topography of how the chapters have been laid out is very methodical but before i get to the book uh you know the audience and, and the listenership would certainly like to learn more about your uh journey into medicine and cardiology sure wonderful you know i'll start i suppose at the end of the story which is to say i cannot imagine a better job career profession, vocation, however I can describe it, than being 
a physician. And it all started uh, back, honestly, before I was born. Uh, I'm the fifth generation of physicians in my family. Uh, my grandfather was the dean of a medical school in Bangalore, India, St. John's Medical College. My parents met as medical students. And uh, I was pretty much told from birth that I would become a physician in the tradition of all good uh, Indian immigrant families. My, my destiny was cast before me without much say for me. And like a good child, I listened to my parents and it turned out amazingly. I, I, I couldn't have been from the first day of medical school. I was captivated by all this new knowledge I would learn. I ended up choosing internal medicine because I felt it was for two reasons. One, the most incredible mentors I wanted to model myself after. And because I felt it was the most efficient knowledge use of everything I memorized in medical school. And I chose cardiology again because of incredible mentors and role models. And also because I loved the fact that in cardiology, the history and physical exam are so crucial to our understanding of what's going on with the patient. You can't diagnose unstable angina without a history. You can't diagnose decompensated heart failure without a physical examination. I love the power of that. And I ended up choosing advanced heart failure transplant cardiology. Again, mentors, a huge theme, the, the impact mentors have had on me. And because I loved the emotional fulfillment of seeing patients through this journey, as well as the intellectual satisfaction of being able to manage patients in the outpatient setting, the inpatient setting, the cardiac catheterization laboratory, the multidisciplinary approach to management. And so for all those reasons, I ended up where I am today, a dedicated clinician. That's my first and foremost role uh, in, in medicine is as a clinician. Um, yes, and you know this is a, a testament that I've started reading the book, uh, and that is that you've actually used that sentence in, in you've written that in a book that you can't diagnose unstable angina without a good history, and you can't diagnose acute decompensated heart failure without a physical exam. So, you know, here's my my testimony that I've actually started reading the book. <laughs> we'll do a quiz on reading comprehension at the end. Fantastic. <laughs> yes, and you know, but you know, just um, so. You know, fifth generation um, of doctors in in the family is is phenomenal, and I um, resonate with what you said because you know I am um, well. If you know, I'm you know obviously uh, my father is is a cardiologist back in India in Delhi, and he's a uh, an out and out clinician. Uh, he's um, seventy two, uh, will be seventy three this year, and you know still um, runs a very busy you know clinical practice and. Um, you know, is, is, is revered by his patients. And, you know, that growing up for me was, um, was my uh, motivation to, to become a physician. And, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that your destiny was written before, you know, you were even born, uh, you know, this, as far as I can remember, certainly, uh, you know, as, you know, as far as, as far as I can go back into childhood memories, uh, I mean, the only uh, person that I wanted to be was a doctor. Uh, and, um, you know, whether we were, uh, conditioned in that fashion, you know, I, I'm certain we were, uh, it's hard for me to tell, but, um, you know, I think credit to my parents, uh, and I certainly have not, I, 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 I completely agree with you, uh, you know, whether it's profession, vocation, 
however you want to call it, you know, you're searching for each of each one of us searches for their own ikigai, you know, that Japanese word of ikigai. And, you know, I think uh, being a physician um, and, you know, a clinical researcher or, or a writer as you are, uh, you know, has certainly been very fulfilling, uh, you know, for, for me. And I'm sure that resonates with so many of us. And I think it's important to, um, to share that message with the listenership as well as with the audience, as well as, you know, with medical students and health staff, uh, because we, we do see physician burnout and, um, and physician suicide, you know, all these topics making the headlines. It is important to also share uh, that just the, the physician being a physician aspect of the job is still very fulfilling for so many of us. Right. Would you, would you agree with that? You know, 100%. And I, I have a theory that burnout, it's not about working hard. We all want to work hard. And no, everyone loves going, you know, getting into bed at the end of the day and feeling like you did something incredible, that wonderful feeling of exhausted fulfillment. So I think burnout comes not, not from hard work, because all good work is hard work, but from not feeling valued and appreciated, not having some flexibility and autonomy in your life. And I, 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 so I think whatever profession one crafts for oneself, and maybe it will be medicine because there's such a gift to, to being in medicine. It, it is trying to uh, figure out how you define your fulfillment. And for some people, it's people telling you, wow, you did a great job. And for others, it might be monetary compensation. For others, it might be professional advancement, honors, and awards. But knowing yourself, knowing what drives you, I think will help you have the greatest satisfaction. So I don't think it's about less hours. It's more about those other intangibles of how do you make the work meaningful for you? Yes, I, I I couldn't agree with you more. I, you know, I think it you have to derive meaning, and I, I really liked the term you used here. Uh, you know, exhaustive fulfillment is that what you said? Exhausted. Yeah. I, yes. I mean, I think at the end of the day, if you can go to bed and, um, um, you know, certainly, I, I mean, I don't know if if the listenership journals or if you journal, but I certainly journal. At, you know, each night before I go to bed, and um, if I can write down just three things which, you know, I think went well uh, on that particular day. Uh, you know, it's a fulfilled day for me. Um, and, you know, the the rubric or the verve of those things is typically um, about the impact that I may have created, you know, whether it's through writing a paper, whether it's through a conversation like this, whether it's, you know, talking to someone on the phone or, um, you know, whether it's taking care of a patient. Uh, as long as I made some impact in some way, shape or form through my action, um, you know, that is, that counts as a fulfilled day for me. And, you know, that I think ushers in, um, like you said, it's, um, it's a noble profession. It's such a privilege to be a physician. Um, it, it ushers in a feeling of gratitude, which I think is really, really important to cultivate and practice because if you don't practice, then the mind is, is such, um, a trickster that it always wants to focus on aspects of your life, which are not perfect, you know, whatever perfect means for you. Um, so, you know, I, I, I do think that it's important to cultivate that feeling of, of fulfillment and cultivate that feeling of gratitude. 
and just be mindful of, um, you know, things you say and conversations you have and actions you take, because you don't know how those words and how those actions impact the recipient. Um, and, um, you, you know, I, I think in, in medicine, we just are blessed to touch so many lives on, on a daily basis. And not only that one patient that we treat, but also their families and their loved ones and their extended relatives. And it just, uh, you know, the, the Delta can go so far for each of us, which I, I think is so gratifying. Um, so, uh, you know, moving on, um, tell us uh, your, you know, your clinical training and, uh, uh, you know, some of the institutions that you, you went to for training, because you do bring that up, you know, when um, uh, choosing uh, a residency position or a fellowship position, you do bring up the importance of, uh, you know, location, the importance of volume, um, and the importance of mentorship. So I do want to touch base on those aspects. And, you know, at, at Parallax, we ha actually have um, had um, speakers talk about, uh, you know, the importance of mentorship. And I know you've had some fantastic mentors in your life who've shaped your career so well. So, you know, talk to us about your training and your mentorship. Amazing. Happy to do so. So whenever I, so my, my training, um, I, uh, well, I grew up in Connecticut, went to a public high school there. Uh, I went to Harvard for undergraduate, where I majored in the biochemical sciences, like every good pre-med is supposed to do. And then when I look back on my college experience, it's funny that the classes I still think about that meant the most to me were those required electives even a biochemistry major has to take and I took one in opera where we did uh, Rigoletto the magic flute and De Valkyrie and I still remember those operas to this day and a, a class on poetry was called poems poets and poetry and I still have my Norton anthology of poetry from that class with my notes in the margin. So that, that was college. Um, medical school, I went to Yale for medical school. And then I did internal medicine um, at Brigham and Women's Hospital and cardiology training at Johns Hopkins, uh, where I also did the uh, PhD program in clinical investigation, learning the nuts and bolts of the biostats and epidemiology that underpins clinical research. And when I think about uh, advising trainees on how do you pick a program, it isn't, I think the three most important criteria of medical education in order are volume, autonomy, and mentorship. Uh, and that would be chapter three, section 3.4, where, you know, volume means how do we learn? We learn by doing. Medicine is ultimately an apprenticeship, and the more you do of something, the better you get at it. Uh, and, you know, I like to tell trainees, you want to see everything while you're still in training. You don't want to see it for the first time when you're out of training, if you can help it. So when you're looking amongst programs, high volume is so important. Autonomy is interesting. In a way, it's a relationship that every trainee will negotiate with every attending physician they work with. How much am I going to take? How much are you going to give? But sometimes there are cultural programmatic autonomy standards and you want to do the best to buy, try to be the captain of the ship to make decisions while you have the safety net of those with more experience behind you supporting you and when it comes to mentorship you know there are those formalized programs where you are assigned a mentor 
sometimes to me, those feel a little bit like awkward blind dates. Are we supposed to have another one? Did we get something out of this? I think mentorship sprouts organically. And I talk in my book about fleeting mentors where there might be someone you work with for half a day who influences your practice for the rest of your career. Or there might be people you use earlier in your career that you may outgrow. There's others who will stick with you for life. The litmus test of who can be your mentor is number one. Do you want to be like them when you grow up? And number two, are they willing to tell you about their journey? Because if you don't see a commonality, you want to be like them, then what use is that? And if they don't seem open to sharing things with you, then they're not going to make a great mentor. And there will be a cabinet. There will be your work-life balance mentor. There will be your clinical mentor, your research mentor, your professional advancement mentor. There will be mentors you have that are more minimalist, those that are more proactive in their approach to patient care. And you will learn from all of them. So really, when I think about training, I think about all those people throughout my career who influenced me in small ways and big ways. I, I tell a story in the book about this ophthalmology resident I worked with. I was a fourth year medical student. I already knew where I was matched for residency. And I just wanted to take some electives that weren't going to be too stressful. So I decided, well, ophthalmology, that seems pretty fun. And this wonderful resident took me under his wing, tried to teach me all about those unintelligible abbreviations they use, which I still don't understand to this day. But he did something really remarkable. We had to go in and examine a patient. And he examined the patient, I examined the patient, and he said to me, whenever I examine a patient, I all when I'm listening with my stethoscope, I never go in straight with the stethoscope. I always put my hand on their shoulder to establish connection before I reach in to auscultate the heart or the lungs. And that connection that that resonated with me and, and every time now this is decades later i still do that and I, I think of him so you know you will find so many pearls of knowledge in so many places and one of the goals of this book was you know you know how are you, your mentors sometimes come down to luck who do you encounter but it shouldn't have to be all luck so by sharing here the wisdom i learned in so many phases of my training from so many different people it's my hope that this book will function as a mentor for people who aren't lucky enough to meet all the people I did who taught me. Yes, uh, you know, thank you for uh, that, that response. I agree with you in that um, I think the burden of mentorship should not be um, put on one person's shoulders. Um, I think you need mentors uh, who will um, match different needs of, of mentoring. Uh, you know, I think, and you sort of bring that up in the book very eloquently as well, that, you know, there are some who are just great clinicians, and then there are some who are just great researchers and writers. And um, there are some who have mastered the art of balancing work and life. And I think you can pick uh, the qualities um, from each one of those and, and seek them out, um, you know, as and when you need them for that, for that specific aspect of your your, your professional life or your personal life. Uh, I mean, there, there are some who you just connect with, um, you know, at a personal level and, you know, those relationships carry forward for the rest of your life. And, you know, they become your life mentors, you know, because they've sort of been through life um, um, and different stages of life um, ahead of you. And, you know, as you want, as you may want to emulate your life, you know, on their life, 
you know, they c- can be an incredible resource um, when you get to that stage of that, you know, of your life, which they've already, uh, you know, traversed, uh, you know, and uh, I certainly have, uh, you know, my own, um, you know, secret squad of mentors <laughs> that I, uh, that I uh, reach out to, you know, every now and then when um, I, I need to just, um, you know, have this conversation with them. And I think uh, these uh, uh, relationships uh, are uh, nurtured, uh, you know, throughout life. Um, so, you know, I couldn't agree with you more, uh, you know, there. Um, and, you know, just by the way, just phenomenal medical background and training. I think this would just be a dream for, I was I was going to say dream for any Indian kid, but I, I think dream for any kid, uh, you know, just to, to go to the places that, you know, you've been to like Harvard for undergrad and Yale for medical school and, you know, Brigham and Women's for residency and then Johns Hopkins for fellowship. I mean, you know, what a phenomenal training and background and didn't to, to, to guess to, to get your PhD in epidemiology and, and clinical investigation just, you know, adds that layer of physician investigator and, and, and a clinician, which I think is such a beautiful and important combination. Um, uh, not only to be, um, I think, uh, a researcher, but I think a great clinician. I think you do need to appreciate and understand. And I'm just going to bring that anecdote um, of you describing how when uh, the Sacubitral Valsartan trial was published and you were uh, at the airport uh, mm-hmm. wanting to board the airplane um, and you were looking at the KM curves and, uh, you know, it, it had been so long, you know, uh, like there hadn't been a drug after a heft which would have impacted mortality, like you mentioned in the book, um, in patients with heart failure. And now you see Sacubitral Valsartan on top of great background therapy, you know, which was great, considered great background therapy at the time. I know since then we've now moved on to quadruple, um, you know, background therapy for heart failure. Uh, you know, but I, I do think that having that um, intrinsic inherent knowledge during training, uh, you know, for how to interpret these intricate data and how to, how to, you know, like just knowing the difference between, you know, as treated and per protocol and intention to treat analyses and looking at KM curves and uh, in, interpreting them, uh, you know, based on how these analyses were done and then um, applying them to your patients, I, I think is, is an invaluable skill. I think is important to know that skill, not only to be a good researcher, but I think, but to be a great clinician for your patients. Would you agree? I, I think that's true. And, and you know, the, the beauty of medicine, I think, is how how wide open it is. And what I mean by that is, you know, when I graduated from fellowship, I had this conception in my mind that my life is going to look exactly like it looks from when I'm a first year attending for the next few decades until I retire. And what you, and you know, you always hear, I would always hear people more senior to me, the more experienced faculty saying, it's a lifelong learning process. And honestly, by the end of fellowship, I was so burned out of learning and learning and learning and being overwhelmed and uncertain about my fund of knowledge wasn't where it should be. That I was like, I don't want to hear it's a lifelong learning process. I want to feel mastery. I, I don't want to feel uncertainty with my knowledge base. You know, and for me, it was about five years into being an attending physician that I said, okay, I got this. I don't know everything, but I know what I don't know. I know when to ask the right questions. I know when to anticipate clinical scenarios. And at that point, 
but I was even better by that point at interpreting the clinical trials. So all of that to say that no matter what amazing place you do your training at, you will find those incredible role model clinicians to attach yourself to. And one of the beauties of social media is the flattening of the hierarchies and the geography where you can have mentors that you meet through Twitter of all places where you can gain knowledge and make connections. And you find that as you gain that comfort, which really only comes from experience, I hope the pearls in my book help speed that along. So you don't have to make all the mistakes yourselves. You can learn from mine. But that with that experience comes the comfort that you get where you now understand the relevance. How does this clinical trial apply to my patient. So what is at once at one time overwhelming now becomes more comfortable as you and, and the incorporation of new knowledge instead of being overwhelming becomes exciting because you have a framework in which to place it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, which actually does bring me to um, the next question. And, you know, that question is, and this is, I think it's, it's particularly geared for medical students and this is like the very first chapter, um, and that is how to learn um, the verbiage of medicine and, and being in medical school. And I think the anecdote—I I shouldn't say really the 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 anecdote, but the the allegory that you use uh, there is you equate it to learning French. Um, uh, you know, after you got back from France with your parents, and uh, you know, I sort of that resonated with me as well because I learned French in school from sixth grade to tenth grade, and then went on to an exchange visitor program with a French family where we stayed for a month with a French family. And we were in a French, French boarding um, school for about a month. And then, you know, the, the next year when I was in 11th grade, so in high school, uh, that French family came to India, uh, you know, to, to, to be with us for, for a month in, in Delhi. Um, so that really resonated with me, but, you know, I think what happened was as soon as I entered medical school after high school, because there's no college in India, um, but the medical school is roughly like five and a half or six years. Um, I actually, the, all the French that I, and I had like taken boards in French. Um, so that all that French actually evaporated, uh, as the, as I started <laughs> learning medicine. So I, I, I do want to, I do want you to discuss that aspect of the book and, and that, that allegory in particular, and you know, what, um, what pearls you have for medical students there. Absolutely. You know, I think there's no sugarcoating it. Medical school is hard. Medical school is really hard and it is intimidating and it is rewarding, but there's a lot of hard work to get you there. So when I have the wide eyed college graduates on their way to medical school, they want my advice. I, I say, you know, it, it, it's going to be hard, but you, if you know that going in, and you have a system, you will be able to uh, excel. So, and what is that system? Exactly as you said, it's treating medical knowledge like a foreign language. Um, I, uh, I, I, I love the fact that when you, you, know, you start learning a foreign language and it's just all the drudgery of verbs and nouns, and is it masculine tense or feminine, uh, tense and, and all that and, and it becomes but you stick with it and then you can actually appreciate the poetry and I think that same transition 
happens in medical school. My roommates and I would sit around the table in our apartment trying to trying to pronounce words like supraventricular or postganglionic. I mean, these words, and I, I have to do it today with things like leveracetam. I, I still have to do that. So there are there is this drudgery of memorization that cannot be escaped because you have to know the basics. Now I say in the book that medical knowledge is half at most of what it takes to be a good doctor, but it's still a large proportion of what it takes to be a good doctor. So you, you do the medical work, you accept that the drudgery will end in an appreciation of the poetry of medicine. Um, so I, I think that, that point is so important. And I would argue that your knowledge of French even if you forgot it, helped you in medical school. So I think it's always important in the sense that you have the ability to remember a time in your life where something was hard, felt impossible, unintelligible, but through dedicated work, effort, time, commitment, the impossible became possible. And I think when you're on the precipice of medical school, looking back at other times of your life, when you were able to master something that felt impossible, will give you the strength to, to enter this new chapter, uh, whether it's some really hard athletic thing. Of course, I cannot provide an example since I'm terrible athletically, whether it's a piece on the piano, whether it's a foreign language you will remember your ability to master that and know that medicine will be the next thing that you will conquer. Yes, no, just uh, great examples. And uh, I mean, I think the only thing that I remember in French now is Jama Pelanker. Um, <laughs> Very useful. <laughs> and, or, or, you know, je, or, you know, like, you know, like I, I, I say to my son, you know, je them and yeah. um, I mean, I could say, comment vous appelez-vous. And I mean, I, I still have the, I still have the pronunciation. So if I read it, you know, I, I will I will pronounce it correctly. You know, so I, I think that's still there somewhere, uh, you know, in the brain. Uh, and I I still I still have the you know like you said, um, the the male and the female uh, verbs, which is very unique to French. You know, I think as a language, um, you know. But um, yes, I think um, I, I think if you can. Um, you know, channel uh, those um, skills of your gray matter and and sort of, you know, commit to rote memory like we've written in the book, you know, because a lot of things uh, in medical school are rote memory. And you, you, you do mention about, uh, you know, some having photographic memory. And, you know, I, I certainly remember some of my colleagues who had photographic memory and, you know, you would be like, why, why, why did I not have photographic memory to get into medical school but you know i think those are some of the shared emotions that i think all the all of the medical students have experienced at at some point you know during medical school um which um actually brings me to the question that why um well first of all thank you for writing such a beautiful book uh, you know like i said i haven't been able to keep it down um you know between my two boys who are five and a half and three years old uh, i'm i'm still trying to get through this book um, which is beautifully written uh, and so much of it resonates with my own life. Um, I wanted to ask you about the motivation and the timing of when you decided to write this book. Was it something which you always wanted to do and <clears throat> you were just waiting for the right time? Or, or was it something which, um, you know, you got inspired to do after what you started sharing on Twitter with Kittleson Rules? And by the way, if 
for any of you who are still not following her on Twitter, which I doubt would be any, at least in, in cardiology, please follow her. Um, and, you know, we'll have you tell us your Twitter handle uh, to the listenership again. Um, but when, when was it, uh, was it the success of hashtag Kittleson rules uh, that uh, inspired you to write a book or was it something that you always wanted to do is, is the question. Yeah, that, that's a fantastic question. So it's at M. Kittleson, MD, uh, pretty, pretty simple. So my origin story of the book uh, starts with an origin story about Twitter. Um, I was never one for social media. I, I mean, I've never been one for technology. I remember being amazed that fax machines work. Like, how does this happen where I send a paper and the paper ends up miles away? I don't understand this technology. And then I was on rounds one day with one of my fellows and I was of course mentoring him and he became my mentor in the sense that he said, you're always spouting these pearls on rounds. Well, why don't you put them on Twitter? And I said, no one wants to see selfies of me eating breakfast. And he said, no, no, that, that, that's not Twitter. That's Instagram. The Twitter is more about medicine. I, I said, I don't know. That sounds, that sounds quite suspect to me. And then we were talking about a patient and he brings up a study. And I said, wait a minute. I haven't read that study yet, but that was a really insightful commentary on it. And he pulls up his phone. He says, look, everyone's discussing it on Twitter. And I said, wow. So he helped me set up my account. And, and then I actually had Kittleson Rules predates Twitter. It, it was inspired by, um, and there was that show on CBS ages ago called NCIS. And there was a, a mentor of sorts who ran this naval criminal investigation service team. And he uh, would teach his protégés things. And if they got it wrong, he'd smack them on the back of the head and say, Gibbs rule number one or something. And I don't smack anyone on the back of the head ever, not even my kids. But I would, I would say, aha, I have Kittleson rule number one. And I, and I would just name these and go around. And um, So I said, okay, instead of just torturing the trainees who are forced around with me, maybe I should share these more widely. So that's how Hashtag Kittleson Rules was born, all inspired by the CBS TV show and the things I would say on rounds anyway. And that's my rule. If I'd say it on rounds, put it on Twitter. Um, and, you know, I was delighted, uh, surprised and delighted by the reception. People seemed hungry for these facts and, of course, experienced clinicians. And, of course, that's so obvious. We know that. But no one quite says some of these things explicitly. So I think people found it very helpful. And then people on Twitter would say, well, when are you going to write the book? And what do you, what's going to happen here? And, um, and a shout out to, there's a Dr. Mark Reed, who's written a book called Medical Axioms, sent me a copy of his book when, when Kittleson Rules started um, to say, you should write something like this. Uh, and then uh, Jim Genuzzi, a, a cardiologist at a MGH, said, listen, you better write this book before someone else does. And let me connect you with my editor at Springer. And, and that's sort of where it started. Um, COVID hit and, you know, I think everyone was mentally subsumed with the existential dread of uh, COVID for a while. So I, I'd written an outline. Uh, so thank you for saying how well it's organized because I love outlines. Um, I wrote an outline and then put it aside a while because I was just trying to wrap my head around my, the life of my family and my patients through COVID. And then it was uh, maybe early 2021 when life started to come down a bit or understood where life was going again. 
uh, where I, uh, I'm an early bird. I get up at 4.30 every morning and I would write for 40 to 60 minutes. I had my outline already. I knew what I wanted to say, just a matter of saying it. And I guess the rest is history uh, in, in the sense that that's how the book was born. My purpose was I didn't want just a listing of Kittleson rules. Listen, you want those, you can go to Twitter. I wanted to say more than I could say in 200 some odd characters. I wanted to put the subtlety in there, the thoughts, the illustrative anecdotes, and I wanted it to be helpful no matter what one's area of training. So as you know, part one is about building your medical foundation. What happens in medical school? How do you poise yourself for success in residency? How do you choose your career path? And then part two about honing your clinical judgment. Like, how do you make these diagnostic and therapeutic interventions? In general, how do you view the role of a consultant? How are you the best consultant? And then part three is more of, okay, you've gotten there when it comes to the medical aspects, but how do you lead a team? How do you poise yourself to be most effective as a working clinician? How do you have those hard conversations with patients who don't agree with you, who are scared, angry, or frustrated? And then I conclude with part four, which is how do you take not only great care of your patients, but of yourself? And I talk about being a woman in medicine and those self-care boundaries. How do you deal with grief and mistakes? So really trying to touch the lives of anyone in medicine, whether you're on the precipice of your career or whether you're in the midst of it, but not finding the joy that you could find if there's things you could control about your relationship with medicine. Can these tools, can these systems, can th this advice help you? Yes. No, I mean, I think the way it's written and, you know, I'm just... Um... Sorry for being repetitive, but it's uh, it's uh, it's 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 the first thing which was so impressionable to me when I started reading it. Um, I obviously looked at the table of contents, and I think just uh, you know, like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the topography of how well it was organized um, and how you took us chronologically through medical school, your training, being an attending physician. And then I, I, I do want uh, the last segment of the podcast, I, I do want to discuss the, the chapters that you've written, which I think are, are beautiful chapters, which I think um, one is about, um, you know, life during COVID-19, which I think is, is very relevant and, and timely. Um, you do, you have written a chapter on self-care, which uh, I think does not only include self, it also includes care. I think Many times people, when they think of self-care, they only stop at self, but they don't focus on care. And uh, I think it'll be an uh, important uh, discussion to have with you, uh, you know, because you bring up things like vacation time, you bring up grief and mistakes. Um, um, and, um, you know, you, you really, you, you really uh, dive deep. Like this is like inner, inner work or meditation, you know, like you, 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 dive deep into distinguishing the unforeseen from the from the expected you dive deep into um like control is an illusion um that you know and only focus focusing on things you can control which is is very very relevant to how i live my life you know uh, on the principles of the bhagavad gita which is you are only entitled to your action and the chips will fall wherever they'll fall 
and that's not your fault as long as you can stand up and said and say that you know your action was well intentioned um so i i do want to you know dive into uh you know both those two chapters and then you know just a shout out for women in medicine i mean i think you've dedicated eight chapter uh to being a woman in medicine uh and you know the the headline of the chapter actually has in parentheses men don't skip this chapter and uh you know really men should not skip this chapter so you know i i why don't why don't we uh talk a little bit about uh being a woman in medicine and what um experiences it has garnered for you let's start there sure wonderful and you know you had apologized before for being repetitive but if you're going to repeat how awesome the book is please be as repetitive as you like <laughs> i love it so as a being a woman in medicine um i i approached this um this chapter you know by by i i was a, i was raised on three immutable truths one of which i already told you i would become the fifth generation of physicians in my family the second thing i was taught told was that as a woman i would be a minority in medicine and the third thing i was told is i would have to work twice as hard as a man to be considered one half as good these are just that what i was that was i was raised for that to be my expectation and while there are certainly situations where i've been treated differently i've learned when is it something i can change and and as you noted when is it something where you just have to let it go um and of course what i'm talking about here is one system it's not the right system it's not the only system it's the system that worked for me and the second thing i'll say is you know i think there's a difference between hurtful microaggressions and the darker side of sexual harassment and you know that boundary will be very different for different people i am grateful to say i never experienced that darker side of being a woman in medicine but i would say for anyone who has survived that the key is to tell your mentor early and often and if your mentor is not responsive you escalate your concerns up the chain of command program uh, director department director human resources that's zero tolerance swift action but what do you do about the other situations the situations where for example when i was an intern in the intensive care unit uh sometimes i say the nurse would come up to me and say patient's getting hypotensive and it would always i i felt with chagrin how whenever i gave the nurse a response i felt that they would look you know, to the left and above me kind of over my shoulder to where my resident was standing and wouldn't say yes to my whatever recommendation i had until my resident standing behind me nodded their head and i didn't like that but then i saw there was a surgical intern who was a woman and she was also small like me asian like me and she would stroll into the intensive care unit very polite give a recommendation and the nurses would follow it immediately and i said wait a second it's not because i'm a woman it's not because i'm small why is she getting the respect that i'm not getting and i really kind of subtly stopped her eavesdropped on her conversations with the nurses and i realized there was one big thing she did that i didn't was that i posed all my requests in the form of a question the nurse would say the patient's getting hypotensive i'd say oh, i think we should increase the norepinephrine whereas i should have said let's increase the norepinephrine and so part of 
the upward inflection, having confidence in my own recommendation gave who I was speaking to confidence in my recommendation. Now, sometimes I wouldn't know. I go to my resident. But then in turning around to relay them, it's having that sense of what about you? Can you change that can make the situation better? I think part of that is claiming your role. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty clear when I walk into a patient's room now and the, and the patient is overwhelmed because there's seven people now entering the room for rounds. Who is who? And so I'll say something like, I'm Dr. Kittleson. I'm the boss of the team. <laughs> because I think that makes it very clear because it's confusing. Everyone's dressed the same. Everyone looks the same. Now everyone's got masks on. Who's who? What is everyone's role? I think that's important. Sometimes humor and sarcasm can help. I've had um, situations where patients will say to me, but you look too young to be a doctor. And sometimes I say things like, thank you, my plastic surgeon would be so pleased. Um, or, you know, the insurance plans here in Los Angeles cover Botox for doctors. Um, and I think that kind of breaks the ice. And I, I try to always assume the best, meaning that the patient is, is in a vulnerable place that were coming to me for help. It might just be an innocent remark or it might be the question behind the question might be, do you know what you're doing? Either way, it's okay. They're, they're allowed to have that that fear because it's, it's their life and, and they want the best for their care. That being said, I think you also know as a physician when to address the elephant in the room. So the elephant in the room can be where you truly feel as if the patient is treating you with disrespect. Um, I, I have a patient, for example, every time I, I see him, I've known him for over a decade. He's one of my heart transplant patients. He does everything I said. He hangs on my every word. But when I walk in the room, he says, Miss Michelle, and gives me a huge hug. Now, could I correct him and say, it's actually Dr. Kittleson? Of course not, because it's, it's the context I think about, not the label. But there are some times when the label is associated with a disrespectful context. And in that situation, I think it's really important to call out the elephant in the room. You seem uncomfortable with my care. Let's talk about why. If you'd rather not, let's find you a physician who might be a better fit. Now, better fit might be a demographic distinct from my own. But regardless, it's that it's call out the elephant because it'll work out better for you and the patient. So I think that's that's certainly a part of it. Um, and I think the other thing that's very important for women in medicine is the I what how does your family life balance your work family life balance. And um, there's a lot in chapter 11 that I talk about regarding my advice for how do you navigate parenthood as a physician. For anyone who is interested um... And you should be if you are in medicine, let alone cardiology, uh, to pick a copy for uh, you know for this uh, copy of this book. Um, it's uh, by Springer, that's the publisher, and it's called Mastering the Art of Patient Care, and uh, it's written by Dr. Michelle Kittleson. Um, it will be it'll be worth your time. It'll be worth um, your monies, and you know I think you'll garner so much insight into what modern healthcare and modern life as a busy clinician taking care of patients and raising a family, you know, looks like. Uh, Dr. Kittleson, any closing remarks for Parallax, any closing remarks for our audience, our listenership, and 
again, I, I can't thank you enough for reaching out. And I'm so glad that in three years, we finally gotten this done. Yeah, well, I am delighted as well. I think the final remarks are that there will be highs and lows in your medical career, times when you're grateful for the privilege and time you question if it's the right career. And the thing that will make that process the most rewarding and the most fulfilling truly can come for the relationships you establish with your mentors as they help you to navigate the challenges ahead. And I hope this book for, uh, functions as a type of mentor, a reference for difficult times in medicine to help you navigate those tough situations so you can derive the greatest joy from helping people and saving lives. Well, that's that's a great note to end, um, you know, the episode. And, you know, thanks again for your time. Um, and for uh, our listenership, you know, we truly value your feedback. Uh, so do um, leave us a feedback on, uh, you know, Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn, whatever social media platform you use. You can also email us at uh, at the email address, which is provided in the show notes. Uh, we are going to share uh, the link for the book that Dr. Kittleson has published in the show notes as well, as well as her Twitter uh, handle. Uh, you know, like I said, if you are not following her, do follow her and um, do leave us your remarks. You know, we do read them um, carefully. We we are very responsive to them and we will get the guests that you want to hear from. Um, so with that note, uh, we'll see you back another Monday. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favorite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at ratcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.